Hello, and welcome to this installment of the SOF Heyman Bookshelf, a podcast celebrating recent work by faculty members in the arts and sciences at Columbia University. I'm Constantine Lignos. Our next episode this season, celebrating recent work by Sarah Zuckerman Daly, is drawn from a panel brought together on the 27th of February, 2023, to discuss her recently published book, Violent Victors, Why Bloodstained Parties Win Post-War Elections. Violent Victors traces how parties derived from violent wartime belligerents successfully campaign as the best providers of future societal peace, attracting votes not just from their core supporters, but oftentimes also from the very people they targeted in the war. Daly demonstrates how war-scarred citizens reward belligerent parties for promising peace and security instead of blaming them for the war. Yet in so casting their ballots, voters sacrifice justice, liberal democracy, and social welfare. Proposing actionable interventions can help to moderate these trade-offs, Violent Victors links war outcomes with democratic outcomes to shed essential new light on political life after war and offers global perspectives on important questions about electoral behavior in the wake of mass violence. Sarah Zuckerman Daly is an associate professor of political science at Columbia University. She has been a visiting associate research scholar in Latin American studies at Princeton University, a pre-doctoral fellow at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard University, and a postdoctoral fellow in the political science department and at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University. Her book, Organized Violence After Civil War, The Geography of Recruitment in Latin America, was published by Cambridge University Press in its Comparative Politics series in 2016. Here is Sarah Zuckerman Daly. My book is about elections after civil wars, why so many people vote for parties that committed mass atrocities in war. And the seed for the project was planted when I was an undergraduate at Stanford, and I took a politics of human rights course where we learned about the Pinochet coup and the repressive dictatorship that left over 40,000 victims. And I assumed that everyone, all Chileans, would naturally reject Pinochet given these human rights abuses. And then I went to live in Chile, and I lived with a family that was very much pro-Pinochet, joining the ranks of 44% of the population that was pro-Pinochet even after the transition to democracy. I was struck again when I was researching my first book, which, as Justin alluded to, looked at why half of peace agreements succeed while half fail. And for this book, I spent 18 months in Colombia interviewing hundreds of former combatants, paramilitaries, and rebels and their victims. And the former fighters and their victims told me about the indiscriminate massacres and torture and rape that the forces had carried out. And yet I found that in many places, the populations supported the armed groups and their allied politicians uh, even after handing over their weapons and demobilizing. And I found that these patterns exhibit themselves very broadly. Around the world, after winning peace, populations vote for parties' deep roots in the armed organizations of the past. For example, in Guatemala in 1999, the party of General Rios Montt, accused of genocide, won the election in El Salvador in 1994 the party most closely tied to the death squads responsible with the armed forces for the vast majority of political killings won the elections. In 2018, the party of 
President Alvaro Uribe, who was facing hundreds of investigations for ties to paramilitary in what Human Rights Watch called one of the worst episodes of mass atrocity in the Western Hemisphere, won the election. When I began researching the book, I thought that how much violence the parties committed would likely determine their electoral success, and that they were probably winning the votes not of their victims, but of non-victims. But I found around the world, in all cases of civil war after, since 1970, that indiscriminately violent rebels did just as well in the elections as those that exercised restraint in their use of violence, that terrorized regions voted for these parties in equal proportions to those regions left unscathed by the wartime campaigns of violence, and that victims themselves were equally likely to support their perpetrators as they were parties unstained by and so then I thought maybe it is a story of coercion, that people are voting with guns to their heads. But I found that they, these parties were also winning democratic, free and fair elections. They were winning the votes of those that were voting freely out fear. They were winning people who were really scared about war recurrence, but also those who did not fear war recurrence. They were winning undecided, were not automatically winning undecided segments of the electorate, but rather had to work hard for so I thought maybe it's a story of a fog of war, that voters were ignorant about the atrocities or didn't know whom the perpetrators were. But many of the elections took place after truth commissions had reported, and so voters tended to know the facts of the violence. So why do people vote for parties that committed mass atrocities and war? In short, peace and security. I find that it doesn't matter how much violence the parties carried out in war, what matters is the military outcomes of the war. If war winning, bloodstained parties can credibly, successfully campaign as the best providers of future societal peace, counterintuitively convincing the populations that they will protect them. Violent victors win or earn credit for peace. This credit for peace serves to justify their use of atrocity. They convinced the population to compare their violence in war not to a world in which no violence took place, but instead to a world in which the violence continued. And relative to this really bleak outcome, voters give to these parties their support because of the relief that peace brings. But voters have very good reason to question whether the parties will turn their guns against them again in the future. And so to do well in post-war elections, these parties have to convince the population that they possess not only James Madison's first requisite of government, the strength to control the governed, which they clearly have given their military victory, but also the restraint to control themselves. And there are a variety of tactics the parties can employ to signal both strength and restraint. So for example, they moderate positionally. They also do so in their candidate choice. In Guatemala, the FRG party carried out the Mayan Holocaust, ran as the face of the party, Rios Mont, and he was clad in, in fatigues and was uh, played the role of the old-fashioned Caldillo who arrived on horseback to save the nation. But then it paired this strong man with leftist Portillo, a victim of the conflict that signaled that the FRG would not re-victimize the armed and unarmed left in the future. Desperate for peace, voters elect bloodstained parties for protection. But you do know something about this. So if in American elections are about, it's the economy, stupid, and in context emerging from the anarchy of civil war, it's about security. And these elections have really important implications for peace and justice and democracy and welfare. 
So the book finds against frequently cited concerns that post-war elections are not necessarily destabilizing, leading to war recurrence. But instead, the strong military position of the war winners deters remilitarization by their rivals. So peace tends to consolidate. But in electing peace and security, voters tend to forego or postpone electoral accountability and suffer degradation in their democracies. And in, and in their welfare. The electing perpetrators of heinous crimes against humanity is not good for justice. They, these parties tend to lock in their amnesties. But over time, as the power of the parties wanes, justice may become more possible. The election of these bloodstained parties tends to preserve democratic electoral rules because the parties preserve the system that brought them to political power. But it tends to block or hinder democratic deepening and lead to democratic backsliding. And finally, voters tend to gain in the area in which these parties have a perverse comparative advantage and competence, and that's the security domain, but they tend to lose in the welfare area because these parties prioritize law and order over social and development expenditures. Next, we'll hear from Michael Gilligan, professor of politics and director of undergraduate studies at New York University. His research explores the effects of various types of international interventions on the societies in which those interventions are undertaken, things like peacekeeping, post-conflict reconstruction aid, and ex-combatant reintegration programs. He continues to have ongoing research interest in using formal models to understand international cooperation. Here is Michael Gilligan. I think this book is really a social science tour de force. This book has everything. It has close-in, detailed case studies of not only Colombia, which she knows extremely well, but El Salvador, Guatemala, other, other countries. The main contribution in terms of number of pages in the book is the empirical contribution. So the vast majority of this book, by page numbers, is empirical content to support her argument. There's, there's a lot there. As I said, there's, there's large and quantitative analysis. There's close-in case studies. There's the nice regression discontinuity thing, which is where she found that these bloodstained parties tend to be overly focused on security and less on other public goods. But the thing that I really want to recommend to your attention are these conjoint experiments that she did, because these are really quite convincing. So a conjoint experiment is this kind of technology that people in marketing develop to sort of give people a bunch of different like flavors of ice cream to find out which one was going to sell the best. Political scientists can use it to sort of get like which mix of candidates are going to do best in an election. So that's kind of what's going on here. And so she, you randomly give, and in her argument, they fall along several dimensions. They can be, they can focus on their belligerence. They can focus on their civilian character. They can be ideologically immoderate. They can be moderate and so on. So what you do is you sort of populate this chart randomly with different combinations of these. And you can infer from that and then ask the respondents, which one do you like the most? And you can infer from that which, which candidates. So what she did is she she did this in Colombia. And what she found, I, I think, is quite striking. She found that, and this was done in 2020, so it was two years after. It was in between the two elections. It was during COVID, so that's not fun. I've been there. And so, you know, there's some hiccups along the way. But I think the, be the best evidence she found 
was really that had the FARC party, which is now goes by the name of the Communist Party, had they actually done what your strategy suggested, they probably would have done a lot better, right? Because if you look at the way people responded to that particular, in other words, if they really had been these tactical moderates and not focused on their on their war record, according to her results, they would have actually done better. Respondents responded more favorably to that. The results were kind of a little less striking with the belligerent government party. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, the incumbent belligerent government party didn't adopt that strategy, right? So the, this is the Santismo party. The party that did was this Urubis party, and they weren't actually in power. So it's a little bit complicated. So it's not clear what the respondents were saying. But I do think that the, the evidence was really good for this argument, and in particular, vis-a-vis the, the rebels. I want to turn to something that uh, was not much of a focus of her argument at all, but that I found uh, particularly interesting, which was in her large and cross-country results. And that has to do with the role of UN interventions in these post-war settings. So there's lots of evidence by Page and lots of other people that peacekeeping missions prolong post-war periods of peace, that they reduce civilian casualties. There's even some recent work that I'm coming out in the APSR from Rob Blair and Jessica DeSalvatore and a few others that it, that it actually leads to a measure of democratization if the UN mandate specifies that. So if we believe those results, and I do, what would then be the effect of these UN interventions in Sarah's model? So we don't know. She didn't really study it. And this is like, and I, this is, you know, put, let's put this file this under ideas for future research. But what I hypothesize it might mean is that this, what she calls the restrained Leviathan, this person who says, look, I'm really good at security, but I'm, I'm tying my hands so that I don't abuse it. They're not going to have the kind of selling point that they used to have because the international community is, is there kind of guaranteeing, it's like guaranteeing, at least shoring up the peace to a certain extent. This wouldn't have shown up in her data because, you know, there was no UN mission in Colombia. There was one in El Salvador and El Salvador actually matches your case extraordinarily well. But it, that was also very early days when the UN started sending these things in. So I think that this might be an interesting area, if not for you, for a bright graduate student or somebody to sort of look into, like, what is the effect of this? Now, Sarah controlled for whether there was a UN intervention in her big cross-country analysis. And what she found, I thought was very interesting, was that it reduced the vote share for the government belligerent party. Now, it wasn't significant. It was highly variant, but the coefficient was quite large. It just was highly variable. So it makes me wonder, how can we account for that large standard error around the estimate. Well, there's small and there's undoubtedly some sort of, everything's endogenous. So there's got to be some sort of endogeneity going on there. So those are, you know, those are all things that might have mitigated, but you know, it's sort of interesting if this is the right strategy, is it going to continue to be the right strategy in these situations now that, you know, the, or in cases where the UN intervenes. Next, we'll hear from Lisa Anderson, Special Lecturer and James T. Shotwell Professor Emerita of International Relations at the Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs. Dr. Anderson's scholarly research has included work on state formation in the Middle East and North Africa, on regime change and democratization in developing countries, and on social science, academic research, and public policy both in the United States and around the world. Here is Lisa Anderson. I want to pose a few of the kinds of questions that are not about the book itself in the sense that I think you set out to do what you 
wanted. You accomplished what you set out to do. But to sort of put it in a different, perhaps, um, historical and geographical context. And then I have a question about an observation you make in passing about the limits of the research. So first, this reminded me of Chuck Tilley. I had a long wall in common with him in his apartment and my apartment. So lots of things remind me of Chuck Tilley. But this is, of course, you know, the protection racket, very simple idea that, as he puts it, state making and war making as organized crime, that this is basically a protection racket. And a protection racket doesn't, in his characterization, have to be people feeling really threatened. They just want to be protected, and they know how dangerous it is to be unprotected. So I, I sort of thought, in a way, you could have presented it in a long historical sociology context as well that pretty much supports what you're saying. You didn't need to do that, but it certainly resonated as I read the book. And there are interesting things about what Tilly himself says, that the would-be power holders, and I quote him, concede protection and constraints on their own action. You know, in other words, some of the things that you accent, I think, are correct, but that's part of why it's an interesting argument. What you do that, of course, Tilly doesn't do is extend it to democratic elections. And that's part of what I think is, from my point of view, an interesting puzzle because much of the experience of concluded civil wars isn't democratic elections. So from my vantage point, I'm thinking to myself, why have elections? Why not just rule? You won. Again, to go back to Tilly, one of the things he says that's interesting about the European experience that he doesn't expect to be true in the contemporary world is the relative subordination of military power to civilian control. Now, you don't ask that question, you assume it. But it seems to me that, you know, at some point you might want to extend that piece and say, under what circumstances do the winners decide to go through electoral politics at all? Because certain in, certainly in the parts of the world that I work on, that doesn't typically happen. So there's something about, again, the history would be interesting to explore. So that's on the substance. Again, and I think given your scope of work, you don't have to ask that question, but it does seem to me to be an extension that would be an interesting direction to take this if you wanted to. My second set of questions, and again, I don't need to spend this much time on it because I'd like to hear what your reflections are, is you say at the end of your discussion of Columbia, I think, you describe the chapter as having sought to approximate the theory's party's strategies so as to experimentally manipulate them. However, given real practical and ethical considerations, there are limits to the ability to do so. This was a society reeling from the effects of 52 years of war, engaged in an already delicate and at times fraught process of writing Colombia's violent history and determining the optimal way to secure its future. The sanctity of this process was to be respected. And I thought that was really interesting. So there's something I would love for you to talk about what it meant to you to do research in communities under that kind of duress. You talk and you have a little, a nice little article about the security issues, but this is for you and for researchers. And you talk about talking to people with blood-stained hands, but what about the victims? What about the people who were traumatized? How did you think about your responsibilities to them, design the research around the fact that you have, as you yourself say, people who are victimized in many different ways. And I just like you to sort of reflect on that because as people begin to think about doing this sort of research, having your experience would be, I think, enormously valuable to them. 
Next, we'll hear from Andreas Wimmer, a Swiss sociologist who is the Lieber Professor of Sociology and Political Philosophy at Columbia University. His research brings a long-term historical and globally comparative perspective to the questions of how states are built and nations formed, how racial and ethnic hierarchies form or dissolve in the process, and when this will result in conflict and war. Most recently, he is trying to understand how ideas and institutions travel across the world and with what consequences. Here is Andreas Wimmer. The book is so convincing overall that it risks making the puzzle disappear. So at the end of the book, when I talked to my wife and said, why, why have you been reading all this book all the time? I said, well, it's really good. You know, you end up thinking, yes, of course, people vote for peace after having gone through a massive civil war. Of course, they don't care about human rights violations since they are rare in most cases. Usually they concern others, not oneself or one's family, even in places where there was widespread atrocities. Of course, they vote for the party that won the war and therefore seems to be best able to prevent its recurring because they can keep the losers of the war in check. So I think coming away with this impression is actually a sign of the success of the book, not one of its weaknesses. So it really makes the case in a very, very convincing way. But let me probe a little bit and talk about something. I have a bunch of other things that I wanted to question, but let me just focus on the one that is maybe the most important one. So Sarah runs through a whole series of alternative explanations that she rules out. And one you've already mentioned, which is that People vote with the guns on their heads so that they are basically voting because they are threatened by the, the victors of the war to resume conflict if they're not. So you rule out this, I think, in a very, very convincing way with data from Colombia, with cross-national data and so on. And there's some other alternative explanations that I think you deal with very effectively. But this one that you haven't really addressed full on and in the way that you did it, I remain somewhat left unconvinced. And that's kind of an organizational capacity argument. And so it's a simple alternative explanation, which says that the belligerent party who is larger has a bigger organization fighting machine, and that is better organized, and that is more popular. So these kind of organizations win the war. And all of these features of these organizations also are good for winning elections. Mobilize the vote, you can get the vote out, you can convince people you have a machine, a campaign machine that can build on the military machine or the civil infrastructure that you built up during the war and so on and so on. So organizational capacity and popularity would then explain both who wins the war and who wins the elections. And so let me now be really mean, Sarah. So I read your appendix tables and, you know, in search for support for my argument, I did find some support for that. So you have this table where the outcome is not the elections, but the outcome is who wins the war. I think it's appendix table 8-3. And so there you have a bunch of things that could influence who wins the war. And there's only one of these factors that turns out to be significantly associated with who wins the war, which is popularity during wartime. And so that kind of hints at the possibility that this is an important factor in explaining civil war outcomes. You then include this popularity in the main table, in the main text, where the outcome is who wins the election, and it continues to be significantly associated with the outcome, who wins the election, even though you control also for the who won the war. So it might 
haven't kind of contributed through the winning of elections, both directly and indirectly through determining who wins the war. So that's only one part of this organizational capacity slash popularity argument. The other parts would be organizational factors, such as the size of these fighting organizations and how good they're organized. So you have a three variables in this uh, appendix table, mm -hmm. but they're not really measuring that. You have in how far the, the guerrillas or the, the rebels have a chain of command. You have in how far they're financed by natural resources and in how far they control territory, all of which are maybe related to their organizational capacity, but maybe not. And there's a literature in the civil war, in the literature on who wins, that uses a bunch of other variables that I wonder why you haven't integrated these. It would be interesting to just see the results. And these are very primitive variables, the number of fighters. And not surprisingly, those civil war parties with larger number of fighters usually win. If you have a tiny guerrilla group, you will not overthrow the government ever. And another one is how well the government is providing its population with public goods, which is also a measure that is available for almost all countries and which is a sign of the organizational strength, the organizational capacity. So I'm just wondering what would have happened had you integrated this, the literature on war termination, who wins, actually, it's very unequivocal. It says these kind of factors play an important role. So I wonder whether if you would done a fuller analysis of who wins, whether these variables that I just mentioned, whether they would also then basically, whether the effect would be both on who wins the war and who wins the post-war elections. So that's the one thing that I kind of left wondering how your thinking goes and how you would, if you had more time and maybe another chapter, how you would deal with these possible complications. Once again, here is Sarah Zuckerman Daly. I think this is a really interesting area for research on the effect of UN interventions. And I like how you've thought about um, what this hypothesis would, would look like that. And I do in the policy implications talk about the fact that violent parties do best when um, security is salient and to the extent that you want nonviolent parties to do better, um, making other issues more salient uh, helps nonviolent parties and that people value civil liberties and rule of law when they feel safe. And so making people feel safe is obviously a way to promote nonviolent politics. And so one of the implications, not that we need any more sort of effort by, by the UN to do so, is make people feel safe. And, you know, I also talk about how these elections are destabilizing if the balance of power shifts and how important it is for the UN to focus on averting a shift in the balance of power, military power, after war, uh, such that the elections are likely to reflect the military balance of power and uh, to have these sort of Leviathan peace outcome that I'm, I'm talking about. But I think that that is an area that would be a, an exciting way to add to the literature on the effects of peacekeeping on democratization on the, you know, elections. I can sort of think about, well, what are these other implications that I, that I didn't really address um, and, and include some of these analyses. And again, I like this comment about the macro political sort of contextual model of, of voting and, and, and thinking about how I, I suggest I use the tools of political behavior in the book, but do suggest that there is an implication for, for voting models and, and how it could be valuable to consider the contextual factors, including the fact that um, most of these models are, are built around advanced democracies and that in much of the world, 
identity issues are very salient and can influence. And our models of voting work very well in these contexts, but they have to take seriously that one of the main issues is, is security. Thinking about this alternative explanation of organizational capacity, and you did go deep in the appendix, it does matter, I think, only for government belligerents, not for rebel belligerents, if I, if I remember correctly. How I think about the organizational capacity argument, I do think that it really matters for media control and the sort of ability to persuade the population of the messages. I also think that it matters a lot for these parties' success over time um, and their ability to build up mobilization machines and compete on non-security issues. And I think that I will go ahead and run these analyses that you're suggesting. And I, um, if I find anything, I, I don't think that the argument is necessarily at odds with what I argue. And popularity, I've always had sort of a bit, I, I say this in the book, and I'm sure you read this, and so this is not going to convince you, but here is how I think about it, which is that if popularity leads to war outcomes, we wouldn't see the kind of huge changes in war outcomes over the course of a war. But instead we see that these preferences are quite endogenous and, and the outcomes, if you took the outcome of a war at any given time, it would, it would be changing. And then you also, I don't think, would expect to see that the winners of wars would necessarily be demographic minorities, for example, in the case of Rwanda, where the gypsies win or ideological minorities where in Guatemala and El Salvador, the right wins, right on behalf of a tiny elite win. Uh, I think you would expect different, different outcomes. And it can't deal with the undecided, the swing voters, the unaffected, unconflict affected non-victims that these messages have a lot of persuasive power over. And it can, does better at dealing with, with core voters. And finally, I think that potentially a lot of the reason why these actors become popular is because they are able to provide security and bring the war to a close rather than them being popular and therefore able to be successful in war. And so that is how I push back, but I take the point um, very seriously and I will continue to look at it. And that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank Sarah Zuckerman Daly and all of the panelists who were present at the event. My thanks to you as well for listening. Once again, today's episode was Celebrating Recent Work by Sarah Zuckerman Daly. The title of her new book is Violent Victors, Why Bloodstained Parties Win Post-War Elections. The SOF Heyman Bookshelf is sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans at the Faculty of Arts and Sciences and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. Our theme music is Moonrise by Paddington Bear from soundofpicture.com. I hope you'll join us again next time.